welcome. Prepare your heart as we dive into the Word of God. Pastor Steve of Beloved Church in Lena, Illinois is about to lead you into a life-changing encounter with grace and truth. Jesus Christ has a divine destiny perfectly orchestrated for those who are willing to be adventurous enough to receive His favor and blessing into their life. Our prayer is that you will allow the presence of the comforting Holy Spirit of God to radically display the Father's love for you. You are a part of God's beloved family, and that means you are greatly loved. Now over to Pastor Steve. We are in my favorite series to date, which it's just like my Bible verses. My favorite Bible verse is the one I'm reading. Like, this is my favorite. This is my favorite series to date, and I have as much excitement and anticipation about the future of this series as I do about things that have already been covered. I'm gonna use multiple places of terminology that are going to connect with past messages. So if you have not heard all of the messages in this series, we're in number eight. So if you've not heard the seven previous messages, I would exhort you to get on YouTube or on Rumble or subscribe to our podcast and you can get it piped right into your personal life. And I'm, I'm doing this in such a manner, I've actually been thinking about this series directly for a year, but some of these things are 30 years old in me. And so putting these things together has been something that I've been trying to be very purposeful about. And so I'm not just willy-nilly throwing messages at you. Here, this will fit in this series. That's not how I'm rolling. I'm literally trying to build this in such a way that one builds on another. You know, you lay a foundation, then you lay the next layer, and you lay the next layer, and you lay the next layer. So as I'm building the totality of this foundation, each layer is gonna be important. So if you miss a layer, try that. Build your house and miss a center of the foundation. You know, you might still be able to put the house up, but at some point you're gonna be sitting in there and you and your, you and your spouse are gonna be chilling, having a great time talking about not being offended with each other, and then the house is gonna go What just happened? The house settled. You don't want that gap. It's gonna throw, it's gonna be like an earthquake in your house. And so please go back and make yourself familiar with previous messages. This one is called real grace. And I'm using the term real because grace is one of the most uh, misapplied, uh, to, to coin a, a progressive term, this, it's a, word that is, carries a lot of misinformation or disinformation with it. That's what, the, that's what the news calls the truth, is misinformation or disinformation. And I would say that the world has done that with grace. They've taken grace and they've turned it into a lie. In today's world, the most common way to use the term grace is to pray over dinner, if you do that. Most people don't. They just gobble their food down, not even acknowledging the God that gave it to them. Or the next most common way to use the term grace would be if you're five minutes late to work and you don't want your boss to be mad at you, you're going to say, hey man, give me some grace. Just so you know, neither of those two terms are really going to benefit you 
in your life if you believe that's actually what grace is. And sadly, in many churches, in many Christian environments, we have a wrong definition of grace as well. And if we have a wrong definition of grace in the environment that God intended to get the truth of grace to the world, then the whole world's damned. We're all in a mess. If we ain't got it right, how in the world are they ever going to get it right? And so when we're going to tell people like, hey, Jesus is gracious or God is gracious, they're like, oh, he'll let me in heaven if I'm five minutes late? Yeah, because that's what we've told them. We, we, we've used that terminology and because there is no correct version, nobody's out there really truly describing and living in what grace is, the world has nothing to do but to go with the misinformation and the disinformation. So, a person's foundation is composed of what they believe, the experiences that they have had, and the people in their lives. I'm actually going to say it again because I, when I was praying about this, I I really believe that the Holy Spirit wanted to communicate this to a lot of people's hearts. It's not one of these things. Your foundation is composed of, my foundation, yours, all of ours. Our foundations are composed of what we believe, the experiences that we've had in our life, and the people that are in your life. These things build your foundation. If one of them is faulty or weak, the foundation is unstable. And I, I could really break this down. I'm not going to do it, but I, I just want to exhort you that obviously you're sitting in here, I'm, I'm going to assume, the main reason you're sitting in here is because you want to believe right. I'm, I'm gonna make that assumption. I'll even say it about everybody, even the folks that are sleeping. I believe that you wanna believe right. I, that's awesome, it really is, because a lot of people, they just don't care. They just believe whatever, and they go about their life. It's 40 years, 40 hours a week, you know, hopefully they can, have a pension for 40 grand a year. You know, it's 40, 40, 40. I think Gary Geisman told me that. That's the plan in the world, 40, 40, 40. And they don't care. I'll, I just believe, you just tell me what to believe. You tell me what to do. You tell me how to, how to stay out of harm's way. And that, I'm just, I'm fine with that. It, it don't care. They're like a chameleon. Whatever color's behind them, that's the color they are. You are unique in the fact that you realize that you have to have better belief systems. You have to believe better. You, you've encountered the Lord, and you know one of the things that the Lord said all the time is you have to believe in me. And so you've, you've embraced that concept. But here's the thing, that's a third of our foundation. The rest of our foundation is composed of the experiences that we've had, or we are having both, and the people that are in your life. I'm about to make a mess. I just seen it coming. 
It's like a slow moving train. And I'm standing on the tracks. <laughs> Is that a train? I know that there are many people, and I know you're well intended. I'm going to just look at my screen. I know there's a lot of folks in here, and you really do want to have good belief systems. And you'll leave here, and you'll go home to a person that has no belief systems. And your life is connected to, in a faulty covenant, to a person that doesn't even believe in or love your God. And you think that you're going to somehow get a foundation out of that. I'm, I'm sorry to be the one to tell you that is not going to work. That is not going to work. Do not think for one second that me talking to you for an hour and a half is going to have any more strength in your life, in your foundation, than 60, 80, or 100 hours living with someone who's antichrist. That is foolishness. And if, you're, if the totality of your, your friend circle is your work buddies and, and gals, it's the same thing. Don't think that, you know, you're sitting in here for two and a half hours and this is, the, we're the beloved family and we sing together and we, we worship together and we learn together and we do, and it's two and a half hours. And then it's 20 hours of football games and, and other things with other people. And you think that two and a half hours is really legitimately going to actually go to the foundation and the 20 hours are not. Now, let me say it this way. All of the parents in the room, you have at some point probably told your kids, don't hang around those people. Amen or oh me? Why? Because you know they're going to influence your kids. And then we grow up. This is like the height of hypocrisy. Well, I'm an adult. I can hang around some terrible people. They're not going to get off on me. What? If, if it happens with a kid who's impressionable, it's going to happen with you. And I'm not saying that you need to have some, some weird, you know, cult environment where you're just locked in a monastery with a bunch of Christians, man, that would be like torture, <laughs> depending on the Christian. But I, but I need you to know that every person in your circle has influence in your life. Every person. And some of them aren't even like real people. Some of them are digital people because they're talk radio people and they're news people and they're those people influence your life. There was, a, there was a stat one time I read that I, I think it was Walter Cronkite, Cronkite, who way back then, when we actually had real news, he was, the most, he was one of the most trusted people in the whole of America. How do you trust someone you don't know? Trust literally has to do with relationship. The world has built a dynamic that they trust people they don't know, which means that we're influenced by that. And inadvertently, we trust people that we don't know. 
They speak into your life and they form the foundations of your heart, the foundations of your life. Some of the philosophies that you carry right now were built by somebody you never met saying something one time to you and it connected with you. That could be good or bad. If a, you know, like if a parent, if you're a little kid and a parent says, you're stupid, you will never be successful. That is part of your foundation. That is part of your foundation. And until that foundation gets plowed and somebody else, you hear your father in heaven say, I don't build junk and I don't build stupid. I built you. Until you hear that, that foundational statement by that person will, st will stay in your life and affect your life for the rest of your life. People are part of what creates the foundation in our life and our experiences. If you went through traumatic things in your life, it will build in you stuff that, whether you wanted it to be built or not, if you went through some kind of fear, some fear-based trauma, you, do, you have fear and you have insecurity. And you can wear the beloved shirt, heroes do hard things, and you can, you can wear an SEM shirt with fearless on it. You, you can wear all the stuff, but we all know down in there, that thing is still there. That gnawing, dark, gripping thing in the middle of the night. It's still there because you have never gone back in and let the Lord give you a new or different experience. And then what happens is we perpetuate this. Parents that have fear raise children that have fear. Yeah, have you looked at our society lately? These kids, Kay and I go for a walk uh, like four or five times a week. And we regularly will be walking at the time that the kids will either be coming in to walk in to go to school or walking from school or something like that. So we'll, it's not uncommon for us to meet some kid on the sidewalk walking to school or from school. And we, I, I wave and or greet every single person that I ever come into contact with, including nearly every car that drives by me when I'm walking. I wave at people, I'm sure they all think, man, this guy is weird. I know, for waving at you. I must be psychotic. And we will encounter these kids and we'll say, hey, how are you? Hello, good morning, something, and they'll. I even said one time, I said to a kid, I said, all we did was say hi. It's that, we just said hi. We're, we don't, we're not gonna hurt you, we're not gonna do nothing. Like, they literally freeze on the inside. You can, you can see them tremble. Why? Because someone said hi. We've raised a society that has been baptized in fear. And that don't just come out because you're sitting in a purple chair. You can sit in that purple chair until you turn purple. And that's not coming out. That has to get out on purpose. You gotta drill that sucker out. In future generations, the new way that they will define illiteracy will be those who will not choose to learn 
who will not choose to unlearn and will not choose to relearn the foundational divine truths that are necessary for human success. You used to define illiteracy as somebody who just couldn't read or write. But the thing was is that many of the generations filled with people who couldn't read or write were way smarter than ours. I really want you to think about what I just said. They could figure out how to get their broken down carriage back on the road and get down to the store so they could buy the stuff for their farm. They couldn't read or write, they could fix a carriage. They could solve life's problems. They could keep their marriages together. They could raise kids that weren't addicted to glowing screens and suicidal. Couldn't read or write. You know, we'd make fun of them. Like, you can't read or write, really? You can't do life. I win. <laughs> that, that, that's where we're at. So the new way to define illiteracy, and I want you to think about this. I don't, I don't care if people can keep up with some of the words I use. I really don't care. What I care about is can you follow and put in your life the concepts, the real legitimate truth that you need to guide your life the way that God intended for it to go. We have people just commit a legitimate insurrection in Washington, D.C. because they were pro, listen to me, they were pro-Palestinian, which is code language for pro-Hamas. If you are pro-Hamas, then you are pro-Jewish genocide. Hamas has declared that their intent, the reason they exist, is to exterminate from the planet the Jews. <laughs> Why did I say this? There is no such thing as a good genocide. We, we need to get this. There, there is no reason to ever say, hey, this group of people just needs to be eliminated from the earth. I don't care how bad they are. I don't care how much you don't like them. I don't care how much you've been told that they're terrible people. I, I don't care. God is a God of redemption. Anybody in here ever been a bad person? And you were redeemed. God loved you. He, he rescued you from the Adams family. You were all in the Adams family. Creepy, some of you were that little hand that walked across the... Broken. Bad people. Adams family. And then Christ came in and said, hey, you want to be in my family? Yep. If we can be redeemed from our bad family, the Adams family, then any people, anywhere, anytime can be redeemed with the same love, the same grace, the same Savior. So anybody that embraces, and this, this goes to the heart of racism too. If you're a racist, you're just a bad person. If you think that the melanin, did I say it right? 
Melatonin. If you think that the shade of the skin, how are there three words that are the same word? Okay, okay. If you think the shade of a person's skin determines their value, you're an ignorant person. And why don't you think that the shade of their hair or the amount of their hair <laughs> If I stood up here and I said, I hate everybody with glasses. I, or contacts. I, you would rightly, now follow me, you would rightly think, I'm a bad person. Why would you determine the value of a person or whether you like or don't like a person because of something as stupid as whether they wear glasses or not? What's the difference? What's the difference? What did you have to do with the fact that you have to wear glasses? Nothing. You grew up and your eyes didn't, or I don't know. The, a kid that's born a different skin shade than you, what did he have to do with that? Hamas is Jewish genocidal, which is racism at its core, and they are they are embraced or at least accepted among the Palestinian people. And I will submit to you that likely there's a bunch of Palestinian people that are really good people and have the wrong zip code. That might not be a universal statement, which I would just tell you that most universal statements aren't. And Hamas invaded Israel and did unspeakable atrocities to innocent men, women, children, and infants. And I'm not getting into it. I can't. I seen one image. I seen one 30 or three second image one time. It took me two weeks to pray it out of my soul. It got in my soul and I was angry at myself because I know what happens when those kind of images get in my soul. And there are some of our largest and most successful and wealthiest Ivy League universities in America have large contingencies inside of them that are pro-Palestinian. So much so that they literally put out public statements, they protested on campus, and a bunch of these protesters came to Washington DC and shut down the Capitol. Believing, listen to me, believing they were doing right. Believing they were doing right. 
There is a, there is a doctor somewhere today that's, that's laying on his couch right now on his Sunday day off, enjoying an adult beverage and probably watching a football game, who yesterday cut the healthy breasts off a 12-year-old girl and has zero remorse, has no conviction whatsoever, is having the time of his life on Sunday, counting his money, watching football. And I know we're sitting here thinking, how could you do such a thing? They don't know the truth. They believe what they believe. They believe that forcing gender surgery or gender mutilation on a child, they believe that's a good, right thing because of what they've been told. And if you can believe that that person exists, now some people can't, there's just no way. There's just no way that I believe that that guy exists, that there's some doctor that thinks he's doing the right thing by doing this stuff. Okay, well, I'm just here to tell you that my worldview is probably a little bit bigger than yours, and these people exist. I've met people who've talked to Nazi soldiers, and Nazi soldiers, when they were killing and exterminating Jews in the Holocaust, believed that they were doing the right thing, they were doing the moral thing, the ethical thing, because Jewish people were terrible people, and that was the problem in all of Germany was because of Jewish people spreading their viruses all over the German population. And the people that told them that, just so you know this, some of the people that told them that were preachers with the Bible. They used the Bible to create anti-Semitism. And I know you're thinking, no way. Okay, if you take the Bible and you say, hey, who killed Jesus? The Jews. We should get them back. You can get anti-Semitism out of that just like that. And they did it, and a bunch of Nazi soldiers who were killing Jews thought they were doing God's service. You can be trained to believe anything if it's given to you right and you don't have the proper foundations in your heart. That's why people who do not have a biblical worldview can be told anything. They can be, said, they can be told, be pro-Palestinian. Okay, great. Thanks, can you send us some money? Yep, because I'm pro-Palestinian. What are you going to do with the money? Well, we're going to actually buy rockets and kill innocent Jews. Well, I don't know if I want my money to do that. Shh, 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 shh. It's, it's fine. It's all good. It's, it's all righteous. Well, okay. The only way that can happen is because people are illiterate to divine truth. The new illiteracy that's going to affect future generations is this illiteracy. It is not being able to read or write divine truth. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says, as you come to him, as you come to him, this is an infinitive in, in language. I'm not going to get language geek on you but this is an infinitive. It means as you come. It's, it has no start and no end. As you come, as you come, as you come. You will always be this as you're coming. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and precious. These, these kind of words settle me well. Because when I... When I get this, 
the anger and the hatred and the rejection from, uh, from people and places. You know, I don't want to be, nobody wants to be rejected and hated. I don't like wake up tomorrow and like, let's oh, see who can hate me today. No, I, I want to be loved as much as anybody else does. I would love to walk in a room and like, hey, Pastor Steve's here, he's our, he's our man. Yay. But sometimes I walk in like, hey, Pastor Steve's here. Shouldn't have done that. Rejected by men, but chosen and precious in God's sight. When men reject you, always remember, remind yourself that God has chosen you and, bonus, you're precious. He didn't just choose you because you were rejected. You know, like, he felt bad for you. Well, nobody likes this one. Yes, I'll take them. Because some people think God feels that way about them. That's not the case. God's like, you were rejected by people that don't even know your value. And I've been wanting to accept you the whole time. Not only do I want to accept you, but I know how precious you are. Why does it take so long for you to come to me? You also, like living stones, are being built. So the first one was, as you come, you are being built. Both of these are in the infinitive, which means that they, are, they continuously go. As you come, you're being built. As you come, you're being built. As you come, you're being built. You, you don't have to stop this unless you want to. That's it. I'm done building this thing. I got one bedroom and a half bath. I'll just live here the rest of my life. Not me, man. I'm... 50 room mansions and more bathrooms than I got time to use them. I'm going to invite all my friends over. I'm going to have a big yard where we can play football. Being, you are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay in Zion a stone, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never, God word, never be put to shame. The more you believe in God, the less the world can shame you. <laughs> what a cool truth. Isaiah chapter 33 in verse 5, it says, 5 and 6, I'm going to read them together. The Lord is exalted. Notice the terminology there, Lord, capital L-O-R-D. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Zion is kind of the Old Testament term for the kingdom of God. You can pretty much insert kingdom of God wherever you see Zion and it'll make sense to you. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times. He will be. And this term, of, this term for your times in the Hebrew is one word. And one of the definitions of that word is this was so, when I, I just looked this up this morning. One of the definitions is, especially now. 
That's literally the definition. I was like, that can't be a definition. That's like a sermon. I'm like, nope. It's one of the definitions. For this three, these three words, four year times, one of the definitions is especially now. Especially now. You know when now is? Now is when they wrote this, which was about 500 years before Jesus. So 2,500 years ago, it was now. And today it's now. It's right now. Right now what? He will be the sure foundation now. A storehouse of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. I'm not going to get into fear of the Lord. But I do want to say that your especially now storehouse is salvation. Salvation. Salvation is one of those terms that we think we know what it means, but we really don't know what it means because we think we're all saved. We are here, you and I together are here because we are saved. I, I hope. If you're not, we can do that today. But we're also here because we're being saved. Amen. Everybody's shaking your head. You got it. How can you be both? How can you be saved, past tense, and be being saved, present tense? Because there's different aspects of your life. Your eternity is secure. If you've made Jesus your Lord and you've confessed him as Savior, then he has secured your place in the heavenly family and you will forever be a part of that heavenly family. But there's a ton of stuff that's going on in your life right now today that you need some salvation. I know, I've met some of your spouses. And you will be saved. Not only at the day of the Lord or the day of Christ, which is how the Bible puts it, the New Testament puts it, the day of Christ. Not only on that judgment day, at the end of times, will you be saved and get a new body and, and all that cool stuff that we all look forward to, but tomorrow you'll need salvation. Amen. I know, tomorrow's Monday. Some of you are going places you don't want to go. You're going to need some salvation. Amen. So salvation is an already and not yet. The power for salvation is grace. So you need grace to get saved. You need sa grace while you're being saved and you will need grace to be saved. Grace is infinitely important in the Christian life. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, and then I'm going to skip to 8 and 9 because I know me and I tend to preach on stuff that I shouldn't. Verse 4 says, but because of his great love, oh, here I go. Great love. I'm going to do it. Great love. His great love for you. The, the word great there is mega. He mega loves you. And not only, like, that's not just a Valentine's Day card. That, that's not just a, a poetic thing like, God loves me. I got a bumper sticker. He, he loves you so much that he showed it in the scars and the blood of Jesus Christ. 
I am almost certain that Kay knows how much I love her. I express it often, I try to do it physically, I try to do it um, emotionally, soulishly, and I try to do it in spiritually. I try to show her in every possible way. I very seldom say it because we're way better at showing it than we are uh, just doing the, the word games. But I have never been crucified for gay. Never have. And she knows, she knows that she knows I love her. And I would, there's nothing I wouldn't do for her. There's no request that Kay could ever make of me that I wouldn't do. None. And she still doesn't have the same proof of my love as Jesus's. <laughs> She's in love with another man. What a blessing. What a blessing. Because of his great love for you. Anytime you doubt that, you know, those of you that wear crosses on all your stuff, good for you. But just remember what that cross is for. This means he loves you. It's, it's not our icon. It's not like, hey, I'm a Christian. This is like our gang sign. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> no, it, this means that God loved us so much that Jesus was tortured to prove how much he loved us. Anytime anybody in this room, if you ever feel unloved, if you ever feel lonely, if you ever feel oppressed or depressed, actually look at a cross. Just do that. It's the best pill you could ever have. That, that's the best psych, psychiatric treatment that's better than therapy and way cheaper. If you ever have one of those moments, just look at that and say, man, God loved me. God accepts me. God wants to be with me. If the whole world completely rejected me and put me in some isolation prison on the top of some mountain, we hate you. The only thing we want to do is get rid of you. You know, God will meet me right in my prison and say, I love you. I would love to be with you for the rest of your life. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, rich, I'm, I'm going to finish this message. I didn't write all this cool stuff in the Bible. You got a problem with it, tell God, quit putting all the cool stuff in the Bible. Rich. You know, at one stage in my life, I was a millionaire on paper. I had a million dollars in assets. And if you knew me then, if you know someone that has a million dollars, most of this room would probably say, that person's rich. Yes or no? So if you walked up to me at that stage in my life and you said, Steve, who do you think is rich? I wouldn't say someone's got a million dollars. I would say someone who's got a hundred million dollars. Right? right. Yes. That would be rich. If you're a millionaire, a person that's rich to you is a hundred millionaire. Well, then what if you walked up to the hundred millionaire? 
Hey, Frank, who do you think is rich? Billionaire. He doesn't think a hundred millionaire is rich because he's rich. It's like mediocre, but real rich is billion. So then what happens when you walk up to the billionaire? Hey, who do you think is rich? Well, I guess the richest guy would be rich. Elon Musk or whoever. So then if you walk up to Elon Musk and you say, who do you think is rich? Be, be a hard question. I don't know what Elon would say. This is scripture. This is like God talking. God's pretty rich. Can I get an amen on that? If you own a universe, you're pretty rich. On paper. And God says that God is rich. His commentary about himself is, oh, you, you want to know rich? I'm rich in mercy. In mercy. Those of you that are struggling in this room about where you think you fit on God's level of acceptance, he's that rich in mercy. I don't know what you done or what you thought you done. He's that rich in mercy. But because of his great love, his mega love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our trespasses. And then if you're reading in the King James, there's going to be a parenthetical statement that says, it is by grace you've been saved. And the reason it's in there like that is because some of the scholars speculate that one of the scribes put it in there because he was so enraptured by reading these statements that he was just like, oh, I gotta write this in the Bible. And I get it, I can't even get through it without preaching on it. <clears throat> by grace you are saved. And I like it in the BSB because it's got that exclamation point. It's like, by grace you're saved. It's like he interrupted. Like he's telling this great sermon and then somebody in the middle of this great sermon jumps up and says, we're saved, Jesus loves us. Okay, yes, you're right, all right. Whew. Let's get back to the writing. But that's the, that's, that's the joy, that's the exhilaration that, that this explains because it's the way that it is in the scripture here. It's kind of like jumps out at you. You're saved by grace. Grace, this awesome thing is what got you saved. That's, that's the expression of, of this great love, this mega love, and, and this rich, 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 rich mercy. It all culminated to being saved, and, and what saved you was grace. And then verse eight, for it is not by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You were saved by grace, and it was a gift. You didn't even earn it. You didn't even know it was coming. It happened before you were born. Grace is God's part that was accomplished through Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 8 it says you're saved by grace through faith. Back up one says... By grace, through faith. So you're not just saved by grace. And you're definitely not just saved by faith. 
Amen. You have got to have both. One without the other, it's like a, it's like a car without an engine. Hey, it's a beautiful car you got there. Yep. Paid a million dollars for that sucker. Bought it at auction. Wow, beautiful. How fast it go? Oh, I ain't got no engine. What's the point? Way to go. You can believe God, but you don't have any grace in your life. Or, way to go. You got a ton of grace in your life, but you ain't believing God for nothing. Either side of this is a ditch and will not get your car to the destination. Grace is God's part that was accomplished through Jesus Christ. Faith is our part to receive what's being offered. So grace is like God saying, he takes this orb of heavenly power and he reaches out from heaven towards you. Here, here's enough power for you to get through your whole life. And he's standing there, outstretched arm, orb of power. What is your response? Thank you. That's faith. Faith is you reaching out to take what God is offering. And I, I know that people are uncomfortable with this because I've seen folks, even in the blessing time, like, hey, hold out your heart so God can impart grace to it. And I'm not doing that. We, we, don't, we think that God's just going to sovereignly do whatever he wants to in our lives. It don't work that way. God doesn't force his goodness on you any more than the devil can force his badness on you. You do know that all these people that believe in the sovereignty of God, that think God can just do anything to anyone anytime he wants according to his will, those people have to also admit that Satan can do the same thing. Or they have to believe that God is Satan. And that actually is where it'll take you. Reformed theology will eventually have to take you to the end result of God and, and Satan are the same person. Because all the good things that happen to you are from God. All the bad things that happen to you are from God. So there's no Satan. It's just the, it's just the dark side of the moon. The gospel is free, but it'll cost you everything. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Anybody know what all means in Greek? All. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Please Please focus on 12 for one second. There's five clauses in there. There are five clauses in there that grace teaches you. You know, you just say the word teach and people are like, eh, I don't want to learn nothing. Okay, you, you do want to learn something. You just don't want to learn this. You can learn the ERA of your favorite batter or pitcher, whatever an ERA is. You, you can learn that and memorize it and know, you know, the, your favorite things. You can, you can know Optimus Prime's special powers. We want to learn, all of us want to learn something. We want to learn how to swing a golf club better. We just don't want to learn the right stuff. Think about it. You, you want to learn, you want to grow, you want to develop. You just want to choose what you want to do it on. I want to get better at this video game until I beat it. I totally had to beat Super Mario Brothers, when we were kids. Mom bought us a Nintendo. 
Never did it. But I was learning. I had calluses on both my thumbs. Anybody remember the Nintendo controllers? They were terrible. I was learning everything I could to try to beat Super Mario Brothers. Never got there, praise God. But think about how many hours, how much effort. I literally put blood, sweat, and tears into trying to beat a video game. Oh my Lord. Now I look back like I don't even know how both halves of my brain were communicating at that stage of life. You want to learn things, you want to be trained, you want to develop, but consider what you want to be trained in. This is what grace trains you. How to renounce ungodliness. The first two things on here are to renounce, reject. Renounce ungodliness, reject ungodliness, and renounce and reject worldly passions. So the first two things that grace does in your life is teaches you how to renounce and reject. We think the first, you know, grace comes, the first thing you do is you just love and butterflies and rainbows and unicorns fly around. No, the first thing is grace will train you how to say no. <laughs> Amen. Well, I just can't say no to this. Yeah, you can. You, you got grace. You can say no. Well, I tried to say, oh, you tried. Now we're getting there. You, you don't try to do stuff in the kingdom. Amen. In the kingdom, we don't try. You go find that word in the Bible. Here, try to live holy. God bless you. Be warmed and filled. No, it don't work that way. God don't try, say be, uh, try to be holy. He says, be holy as the Lord's holy. Be. No try. The first two things grace teaches you is what not to do. And then grace teaches you the three things that you need to start doing in order to bring this great salvation into your life. So, First, reject and renounce ungodliness and reject and renounce worldly passions. And then grace teaches you, teaches you to live self-controlled. <laughs> you, you can't live self-controlled without grace. Anybody tried it? Yeah. Before you came to Jesus, your awesome self-controlled life was putting you into hell. Yeah, that's what self-control will do without grace. That's a terrible way to live. So the first thing, it'll teach you how to be self-controlled. So when somebody walks up to me, and I know that they're lacking self-control in their life, I'm going to encourage them to get into the grace of God. And many times they get mad at me. Well, I got grace. I'm, I'm talking Bible grace, not work grace, five minutes late grace, not grace over dinner grace. This kind of grace, Bible grace, the kind of grace that teaches you how to live self-controlled. Grace teaches you that. It also teaches you how to live upright, with dignity, with reverence, and how to live godly. Grace teaches you that. Not Steve. <laughs> and notice, not for some future, way off, next generation Star Trek time. It's for right now. Grace teaches you how to do it in this present age. You know, I don't know if Paul knew that we were going to have a 2023 and how terrible it was going to be. But God did. God knew that we were going to be in this present age, and he's like, oh, I got grace for that. But if they only knew how bad it was in today's world, oh, he, God knew. God knew. 
You think something going on right now that shocked him? Well, did you see what they did over there in Jesus? I didn't know that was coming. God knows, and we have grace. We've got sufficient amounts of grace even for this present age. For your present spouse. For your present children. Now, come on, that was worthy of an amen. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our God, just so you know. It's a really good doctrinal point. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Those people are the ones that are zealous for good works. Is anybody in here a zealot? Okay, five people. We'll read it again. God created you to be his prized possession who are zealous for good works. That's what he created you to be, is a zealot for good works. Amen. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just pull a few of these, these words out of these verses. Grace has appeared. Notice it, it gives this thing like a personification. It doesn't sound like it's a thing. Like a, some ethereal power or essence. It doesn't sound like that. It's like grace appeared. Like you could see it. You, you know when grace is working and when grace is not. It, it's personified. It's like it has a, a personal imagery. And it says all people, all people have had the same access to the grace that you and I have that brings this kind of salvation. And salvation is much bigger than just some emotional moment where you, some, some, where you said some magical prayer of salvation in you group. That's not salvation. That's a little bitty tiny, tiny piece of salvation. And don't think that just because you quote unquote paid your fire insurance in youth group when you were 12 that you're saved now. Salvation is contingent on allegiant faith and loyal believing. Anytime you say, God, I'm done with you, God will hold you to that. And whether you verbalize it or whether you live it, God will hold you to it. If you reject God with your heart, it's the same as renouncing him. And don't think that while you're living your life completely rejecting God, completely embracing the world, in bed with the world is not in covenant with God. The word appears here, that, sal uh, that grace has appeared, is epiphany. Epiphany in the Greek. Think about that. We have an English transliterated word. I've had an epiphany. It means that you've seen something so real that it was actually like it was real. I've had an epiphany. This word is an, ero, an aorist verb. And again, I'm not getting geek Greek, uh, geek Greek on you, but this, an aorist means that it happened in the past, but it has no end. Now that's cool. All we have in English is past, present, and future in our tenses for verbs. But in the Greek, they have eris, which means it happened, and it's always going to happen. Forever. 
that has appeared. So grace is always going to happen. Grace one time appeared, and now it's going to appear forever. Jesus is the grace of God. In, this, in this, these few verses here in Titus 4, it says the word for salvation here is a unique usage of the word soter. And soter is a noun, and Jesus is our soter. He is the Savior. The word soter means Savior. Jesus is our Savior, but yet here the word salvation was an adjective describing a noun. Jesus is the noun that brings our salvation, and so this word for salvation is describing Jesus. So grace describes Jesus. This is important. What makes it special is that it is an adjective and not the subject. The noun that it describes and or points to is grace, and so this Holy Spirit-inspired, canonized place of Scripture is exchanging the divine name of Jesus with grace. This means you could take the name of Jesus and put in grace, and you could take the name grace and put in Jesus, and most of the sentences in the New Testament would still work exactly the same. John chapter 1, verse 14, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only, the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it appeared, Jesus appeared full of grace and truth. <clears throat> John 1, 16 and 17, <clears throat> from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So from his fullness, so Jesus was the fullness of the grace of God, and from his fullness we received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Notice grace and Jesus are nearly interchangeable. Romans six fourteen: for sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but you're under grace. So this just said, grace is your master. It, amen? amen. Right. Who is our master? Grace. Grace. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's the point. Grace is your master. Jesus is your master. Your master is grace. Your master is Jesus. Grace and Jesus. <clears throat> Back to Titus 2.12. Here we learn that salvation works its way into our lives and circumstances by teaching. Anybody know what word that is? Paideia. Spent three messages on paideia. This is God's teaching. Jesus came to be, he is so cute right now. <laughs> Stop it. A little bow tie just smiling at me. That's the best listener in the whole room right now. Just listening and smiling. Preach it. It's going to be his first words. Preach it. Back to the Bible. Paideia. Paideia is what grace is doing in your life. Grace is doing that paideia process that I just told you about that I spent all those messages teaching. That's why I said you got to go back and listen because grace is what's doing this paideia in your life. 
And this is like everybody's favorite word. Yay, I want to be taught. I, I love paideia. You do if you actually want your life to go the direction that that teaching is going to get you to. People are okay on cruise control. Like, my life's not that bad. I'm not dead. Well, congratulations. That's not the point. The point is God wants you to have an abundant life. That's what Jesus came for, was to give us abundant life. And, I, and I'm not getting into comparisons. We're not supposed to compare each other, but really abundant life means the, the quality and the quantity of life that Jesus Christ himself has. So you shouldn't be comparing yourself to someone. Him. If you're not living the life that he died to give you, then you're out of sync with what he's teaching you, Paideia. <clears throat> so church grace versus God's grace. This is, this is where I get the terminology, the way that God revealed it to me was dry drunk. And you guys have heard me talk about this. A dry drunk is a person who is a drunk who's just not drinking. And a lot, of, a lot of people in this room have gone through this and they've testified to me. It's like, th this is actually good language because this is a part where I was in my life. I, I didn't want to be under the influence. I didn't like to be under the influence. And so I just like white knuckled it, grabbed the steering wheel and stopped drinking. And that's, it's better and worse at the same time. It's better because at least not, you're not going to kill the innocent family on the road because you're driving around drunk. God bless you for that. But it's worse because you never actually got free from the thing and every single day you get deeper entangled to the slavery of that thing. Because you're trying to fight spiritual problems with fleshly weapons. Church grace is, if you do this, if you tithe, if you pray, if you fast, you read the Bible, if you be good, if you be holy, then God will be gracious to give you fill in the blank. Prosperity, healing, peace, deliverance, whatever. Whatever that thing is that you're searching for, the average person says, okay, I need this in my life. I don't have it, so let me find out what God wants me to work and do so I can work and do, and then he'll give me the paycheck of the thing. God's not your employer, and it don't work that way. This is the whole, this is the whole philosophy between, behind do good, get good, do bad, get bad. And here's the, here's the problem is that we have a ton of verses that say, hey, if you do good things, good things will happen, right? Be not deceived. God's not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And he that sows to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. And he that sows to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. The Galatians chapter 6. And so you look at that like, okay, well, if I sow good things, then God will give me good things. No. <gasps> but the Bible says, be not deceived, preacher. Okay, be not deceived. If you put a corn kernel in the dirt, it's going to make corn. God didn't make it. You made it. God just invented the system. It's not God directly giving you a corn stalk. Well, you know, Zach put a piece of corn in the ground. Jesus, give him a stalk. No, it's a system that just exists. You, you give and it will be given unto you. Luke 6, 38. 
Give and it shall be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. It's a system. It's not God doing it directly. It's not you doing good and then God giving you good. It's just a system that exists. And he's telling you, don't be stupid. Don't be naive. Be not deceived. God's not mocked. He made the system. You put corn in the ground, you get corn. You, you do good stuff, you get good stuff. But it's not God directly paying you for doing the good stuff. It's just the system that he put in place. God's not paying you for good stuff. And the devil's not paying you for bad stuff. He's having a party when you do the stupid stuff because then he's like, yeah, permission. You cannot earn grace. Romans 11, five through six. In the same way, at the present time, we just covered these kind of verses, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Anybody in here remnant? Man, you're in a one percenter church. So if you ain't remnant, I don't know what is. You are a remnant that's chosen by grace. And if it's by grace, then it's no longer by works. God doesn't choose you because you're awesome. This isn't like dodgeball in high school. Well, Ryan throws good, so I pick Ryan. And, you know, Tabitha, she's short, so nobody can hit her, so I'll shoot, I'll choose Tabitha. And, man, you know, Zach, he can't throw, or, and he's tall, and nobody wants him, so he's the last guy picked. What's wrong with Zach? Nobody chose him. I, I know what that feels like. We used to play smear the, oh, I shouldn't say it. Someone was praying for me right there. <laughs> Don't do it. If it's by grace, then it's no longer by works. Otherwise, grace isn't grace. If you think, well, I'm doing good stuff, so God, give me grace. I'm just five minutes late, God, give me grace. <laughs> Don't work that way. God doesn't dispense grace based upon your merit. You can be the most the most deserving person on earth. And God's not going to say, well, I'm going to give them a little extra, a little dab of extra grace over there because they were really good on Tuesday. He, he's not like your kindergarten teacher. Look, look, Junior, you got five stars. You can have a chocolate. Yay. Can I get it at church on Sunday? Yeah. God will heal you because you had five good stars. And so on Sunday, you can go to the altar and you can ask one of the altar ministers to pray for you. And because you had five stars, you get healed. We don't live this way. This is not how the kingdom works, y'all. Grace is by grace. It's not by works. You can't earn it. Here's the good part about it. You can't get rid of it. God's given you grace because God's gracious. Now, you can flub it all up. You can miss it. You can not partake in it. You can tell God, uh-uh, watch me dodge all the grace that you're dropping. I'm going to do it better than anybody. Okay, God's still dropping it. It's like rain. It's coming, and if you just go outside, you're going to get wet. My official definition of grace is the unearned infusion of divine empowerment. 
in our life, our heart, our circumstances that's driven by relentless compassion and love. It took me years to make that definition. So someone should amen it or something. <laughs> nah, poverty amen. The unearned infusion of divine empowerment in our life, our heart, and our circumstances driven by relentless compassion and love. The scripture reference in Romans 11 is saying that grace is given freely, otherwise it's not grace. If it was given to us according to our works, then it would not be grace. It'd be earned. The problem is we are incapable of earning anything from God. When you really understand that God loves you because he is love and not because you've earned it, then your religion, or I would say your cult, is in for upheaval. God loves you because God loves you. Because God loves you, because God loves you. Every day for the rest of time. God gives you grace because God is gracious, because God is gracious, because God is gracious. Grace cannot be earned, but it needs to be cooperated with. Amen. Amen. About to get real right here. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, the last verse of Galatians 2 and the first five verses of Galatians 3. So I'm going to read this in the CEV. I don't know if you, oh, you have that. God bless you. That's awesome. So I'm going to read it from right up there. And I'm just going to read through this. I'm going to read kind of slow because I want these words to kind of sit in on you. So if you've got your own version of the Bible, that's great. But I kind of want you to watch this and then go home and study yours later. I don't turn my back on God's gift of undeserved grace. In, in I think the King James and or the New King James, it says frustrate. I don't frustrate the grace of God. Now think about that. If, if grace was just something, how could it be frustrated? But if grace and Jesus are kind of synonymous, it would be wise to not frustrate Jesus. <laughs> and, and he's going to go into how it is that we don't frustrate or turn our back on God's undeserved grace but I just want this to kind of sit down, soak on you for a minute. You can. Otherwise, why write the verse? You can. And he's writing to Christians. He's writing to the Galatian church. These are Christians, born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, whoop, whooping, just like you. And he's saying, you can, you, beloved church, you can frustrate the grace of God. You can turn your back on God's gift. And this is how we do it. If we can be acceptable to God by obeying the law, it was useless for Christ to die. So if you can get God's grace, then why did Jesus have to die? Next. You st <laughs> You know, people get mad at me how the way I talk. 
if I wrote this letter to you, you would never come back to Beloved Church. Hey, stupid beloved person. <laughs> Pastor called me stupid. I, I, we can just like have an internal joke like, hey, you're kind of Galatians 3.1 right now. <laughs> don't you dare. Don't. <laughs> you ever let words out and you're like, come back. Verse 1. You stupid Galatians, I told you exactly how Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross. <laughs> Has someone now put an evil spell on you? And I cannot tell you how many times I think this. Like, that person is possessed. I know a Christian can't be possessed, but that one's possessed. Verse 2, I want to know, I want to know only one thing. How were you given God's spirit? Was it by obeying the law of Moses? or by hearing about Christ and having faith in him. And think about your experience. How'd you get the spirit of God? How'd you get salvation? Doing all the right stuff? How many of you were fasting and tithing and being holy before you got saved? No, you were an unobliterated mess. And Jesus came into your mess and brought salvation to your mess. You didn't earn it. Well, if that's true, which we all would agree with that, well, that's right. I didn't get saved by, by obeying the law of Moses. I got saved by hearing about Christ and having faith in what I heard about him. Next verse. Well, how can you be, how can you be so stupid? Do you think that by yourself you can complete what God's spirit started in you? If you receive salvation through unearned grace, how are you going to walk in salvation today and obtain salvation tomorrow by works? What well, the way God started it is the way God's going to finish it. Verse 4. Have you gone through all of this for nothing? Is it all really for nothing? Did you get to this stage and now you're just going to work for it? Verse 5. God gives you his spirit and works miracles in you. But does he do this because you obey the law of Moses or because you have heard about Christ and have faith in him? Grace is God giving you what you do not deserve to empower you to do what you could not do. A dry drunk could not be delivered. But a humble, submitted believer in Christ can be completely redeemed from alcoholism. And not have to work for it. Just agree with it and submit to it. A place called there. If anybody have ever heard Andrew preach on this, it's one of my favorite messages that he does. He preaches a great message called A Place Called There. It's in the life of Elijah or in the series of Elijah. And it's based upon one verse in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 4, where it says that God told Elijah, I want you to go over to the brook Cheroth and I want you to stay there because 
There is where I told all the ravens to bring you food. Which means, if Elijah would have went where he wanted, well, I don't like the... I don't like the beds at the Hotel Six. I'm going over to Super Eight, but I sent your food to the Hotel Six. But I don't want to be over there. That's where the food is. The grace is there. God sends the grace there. If you're not there, then the grace ain't there. You need to be there where the grace is so that you can partake of the grace that's there. How, what does this look like? Genesis chapter 6 verse 8 says that Noah found grace. Yeah. Noah found it. He was looking for it. Where can I find? I know God provided grace because God's faithful. God's good. His, his great mercy, his mega love for me, his rich mercy. I know this is his character and so I know that there's grace. So where do I need to find that grace? And Noah found it. And if you're thinking, well, that was Noah, well, let's do New Testament. Luke chapter 1, verse 30 says the exact same thing. And Luke 1, 30, it says that Gabriel came and showed up to Mary and he said, Mary, you have found grace. Mary, 13-year-old girl, jacked up society, bunch of stuff. And she found it. If a 13-year-old girl can find it 2,000 years ago, then you and I can find it today. And lastly, Hebrews 8, 10 through 12. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and inscribe them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. Next verse. No longer will each one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. This is the only way that God can get grace in your life is by him not remembering the reason you shouldn't have grace. This is how he can just send it to you endlessly. Because he doesn't, he doesn't believe your excuses for why he shouldn't be good to you. Your sins, your iniquities, he remembers no more. He is too busy getting grace into your life to be sitting around thinking about how broken you are. Now, if you want to sit around and think about how broken you are, how terrible your circumstances are, that's fine. You're just going to do it alone. Because God ain't going to join your pity party. This is the covenant that you and I have with God. He's not filtering through your life, looking at you through the spectrum of your failure. He's looking at you through the spectrum of his great victory and success in Jesus Christ. And so he's showering grace into your life. And I'm just asking you to get into the rain shower. Be there. Find the grace of God that is going to bring the salvation for your present and for your future.
Please rise, I'd like to bless you. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us as we have encountered Jesus Christ through the ministry of his life-changing word. If you would like to learn more about Steve Castle Ministries and Beloved Church, you can go online to stevecastle.com or belovedchurchillinois.com. You can also contact us at 815-990-0367. Always remember that you are a part of the Beloved Family of God and Beloved Church is the place where you are greatly loved. Now please open your heart to receive as Pastor Steve proclaims the blessing of the Father over your life. I pray, I declare that above all things that you allow the finished work of the cross to bring prosperity into your finances and also divine health prospering your body and all of these things are going to affect you in a supernatural way as you allow your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions and your personality to be perfected in prosperity that the Father desires for you to have. We love you and we cannot wait to see and be with you again soon. Goodbye, beloved.